Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by John Rackett, founder and chief executive of Gasworld, the authoritative media platform and events company for the industrial gas sector. John, hello. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning. Thank you very much for coming on the program today. Uh, now, normally we get directly into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, we must start there. How has this affected your organization? Uh, well, it's had um, a, a fairly large effect on our business in that we are a media and events company. And whilst the media side can continue to operate uh, as normal, uh, the event side has been uh, completely curtailed this year. We had about five events lined up across the world, and we've had to uh, not so much cancel them, but postpone them until 2021. What is now a concern to us is that the second spike that is starting to appear in many places across the world may make the first six months of next year again a difficult time for those running events. So it has had um, a, 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 a significant impact on on our business, and I would say probably about a third of our revenues uh, were dependent on the event side. So that uh, that is the kind of impact that it's had on our business. Now, what do you think the future will be for the next six, eight months for businesses, considering the possibility of going in and out of uh, some sort of lockdown? Uh, do you think we've learned enough over the past few months that we're able to adapt, or do we think that there's going to be quite a lot of um, industrial carnage along the way? Well, uh, first of all, your question is immediately after uh, our own prime minister has announced that we are virtually going back into a lockdown, not quite as bad as what we had before, but for businesses, just the question of working from home versus working in the office uh, is less than 24 hours old. So I think this is going to have quite a dramatic impact on on businesses. Um, And in fact, just in the past 12 hours, we've been reviewing how we uh, communicate what has been announced by the government to our staff, uh, our management and our staff, and how we're going to operate. We've just really been spending uh, the last two weeks working back in the office as a full complement of, of staff. And now we're facing the issue of returning to working from home uh, or the options that we need to consider. But we have learned um, from when the initial lockdown was in in March um, and we're going to put more um, measurement metrics in place uh, because the word is if you can work at home effectively. Um, now, most of my team uh, did work effectively at home and did an extraordinary job uh, over the three or four uh, months that we were in lockdown 
but some others uh, struggled. Um, and so we've got to ensure that those that struggled don't do so again and look after their needs um, and uh, aims and goals. And then obviously uh, we set targets so that we can monitor how effective people were. I think beforehand we didn't have a really a sort of performance monitoring process in place, but we, we will obviously have to engage that the second time around. Now, we are here to discuss the concept of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Well, that's very interesting. I guess maybe it's a standard answer you might get, but my view on this is um, a, a leader is how best or how to get the best out of people. Um, this defines this is easy to define. So it's how to get the best out of people. That's my, my definition. Uh, but many people have many different ways of approaching this. So, but that's my simple answer to your question. And how would you describe your personal leadership style? Well, um, it, it's interesting you ask that because uh, I was going to kind of follow up that sort of confirmation of, very, uh, you know, naming some examples of leaders and the different styles they've approached. And if you uh, names may be familiar to you, may not be, but we had a famous Colonel H. Jones in the Falklands who achieved success by leading right from the front, but sadly it cost him his life, but mm. it made a big difference to the Falklands situation. Whereas you take our famous Duke of Wellington, uh, AKA Wellington Boots, he led uh, or managed, I should say, from the rear and was successful. Mm. Um, Margaret Thatcher, uh, controversial, but led with an iron fist, but Richard Branson is very hands-off and allows his businesses to be led by others, uh, but manage his own ambitions through selecting others. The question was, how do I see myself? I believe that uh, I believed in leading from the front and by example. Um, and that's how I have set about my business. Uh, if I'm going to be totally honest with you, I don't think I've been a success at that. The business has been successful, but in terms of being a leader, you have to be a manager. and. Uh, and you have to be not just successful in, in business, but managing the people. As I said, it's how to get the best out of people. And I would say that a number of my uh, team over the years, over the 15 years or so that uh, Gasworld has been operating, uh, they haven't followed my lead, but we have generated success. When it comes to leadership, we all have our own journeys there, and you've mentioned some interesting names to take um, uh, your lead from, but how did you come to your form of leadership? Did you have a particular role model, or have you been shaped more by circumstance? Uh, I think it's by circumstance. Um, I'll be honest that my my uh, businesses before I set up Gasworld and my current business that I, I run two businesses, but have been in the consulting sector. And uh, if you speak to 
most people, uh, they would say that consultants are failed managers. They're able to perform their functions, but are they able to manage people? Um, and I come from that sort of background, and I think it has uh, shown I'm not being negative. I, I just think that what I mentioned to you before, that I lead from the front um, and possibly the people who I was supposed to be managing didn't follow that that route that's a, that's that's obviously a skill so um so I would say that leadership uh, particularly with the team I have the 30 odd people we have at Gasworld uh is very much that it was circumstance because I was the founder and uh the the knowledge base of our industry I fell into that because I was the founder and CEO. Um, now I actually have a manager, a, a director in place that actually does the day-to-day -day management of the business and allows me to do probably what I do best. So uh, it's not that I'm copying out of leadership, but as I said, some examples are of people, if they're effective leaders, but not good managers, they will hire good managers to roll out the strategy or the aims or goals of the industry. Well, one of the most important aspects of leadership is knowing when you need to delegate. And it sounds like you have a very effective means of doing this. Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does next 12 months have in store for Gas World? Well, we uh, we had a three-year plan set out in at the well, basically at the end of 2017, to deliver certain milestones by 2021, uh, and it's a rolling three-year plan. But the team have been put on an incentive to to reach those goals in 2021. COVID, uh, in a sense, COVID without COVID, the team would have. Uh, produced or delivered the 2021 goal in 2020. So what is in store for us is that we've got to, and I've got to, and the, and the senior management team of the company have to encourage the, uh, the whole of the team to carry the momentum, terrific momentum that they had in 2020 through to 2021 um, and make adjustments for COVID. Part of that will be how do we adjust, uh, let's say, our events business and move that more towards online digital events, which are now happening rather than actual physical meeting events around the world. Well, John, I do wish you and the entire team the best of luck. Uh, it's been a pleasure to speak with you, and I do hope uh, that we can have you back on the show at some point in the near future. But for now, I think all that's left to say is goodbye. Well, thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you for your time. That was John Rackett, founder and chief executive of Gasworld. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Scott Challoner's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might, might last. 
Absolutely. Can't be on thunderstorm. It's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2 0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved it would be someone like Harry who's a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I want England to be successful I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in in all sports and particularly in my sport so I wanted to bury it and I'd be absolutely I would be as delighted as anybody in the, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is... is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened the ball nestled in the top corner England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before haven't you yes I think people um, I've I I recall exactly what's amazing I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment obviously a crucial moment in in the game towards the end of the game I knew the game was nearly finished as the ball came to me initially I was actually with my back to goal I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms indicating quite clearly of course that the game was nearly finished so when I got to the edge of the box I'm, I now think of the game is nearly I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left but I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense, because the game is unfinished. But that that philosophy is right. You're just going to 
there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've got, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital in uh, important in a sense to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony. Um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. 
um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be a rap, to be uh, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp, who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years Harry's been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the, and teach and coach the players to be to prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, it's a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager, who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and from all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic, uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, Young people will make mistakes but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. 
Mm. completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during That's your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in in those uh, medieval days, you there were you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford. We that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, we as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and it's always your three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making balls of wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, we were actually... But that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to 
two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game. And then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had uh, one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, finally. I've got a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to 
smother balls and not just setting balls at it. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you could possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. And very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player when you win a World Cup. You need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banksy was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. 
did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just still well, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my... Uh, sell by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success the club had. So um, yes, it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and. Um, uh, two daughters and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there so that was, that was a good time it's completely different Ireland was just a just a I always joke about Ireland I was there for about I think a month I think it was and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England new, new kitchen <laughs> So it certainly went really well I suppose in the waning days of um, your career um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the, time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. 
but one of the things I learned about brands is I've taken into my my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life if we're involved in business is when you're managing people you're managing the group anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss you move them out and I think that's the simple one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names um, and you hear stories about this player not you know, completely complying with everything and they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries. Members of staff other guests, or any other person therein associated.